Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian and author of Critical Issues Commentary. In this series, we are discussing Dutch Sheets' book, Intercessory Prayer. Now, when we closed last week, you had just read Acts 3, 19 through 21. Do you want to read that for us? And then we will pick up on our conversation about how he is applying Psalm 110. Okay. Uh, Acts 3, 19 through 21, we ended with this. This was after Pentecost. It says, and therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. We pointed out that this was uh, talked about, they asked Christ about this before Pentecost, and he said, the times are appointed, fixed by the, the Father. Okay. Your business. But you'll be my witnesses. Okay, so they are to preach Christ. Jesus ascends to heaven. He ascended to the right hand of God. And he rules from there. Right. Okay. Until yeah. continued to, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Right. And that he may send Jesus, uh, the Christ. Who is the Christ, by the way? That's an important concept. Okay. Christos. How Christos means the anointed one. Yes. Okay. So the Bible teaches us that there is only one Christ, the anointed one. Okay. Christos. Yes. And all Christians, according to John and First John, have an anointed anointing from the Holy One. All right. So there's no great anointed person of God beyond other Christians. Right. Okay. And that's an important distinction because these teachers will all have you believe you can go to their meeting and hear from a mighty man of God. Well, the anointed, the the anointing came. We have the holy anointing, or this is the holy anointed person of God. Uh, or prophet, or prophetess, or whatever. According to First John, that's a false category. Okay. There is the Christ, the anointed one, and you have an anointed anointing from the Holy One, he says, to Christians in general. Right. Any other one who claims to be specially anointed is Antichrist. Okay. The false Antichrist has a false anointing. Yes. So don't claim to be the anointed man of God beyond your brethren, because you're making yourself a false Christ. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's I important. about that in 1992 or three. Yeah. CIC, uh, CICministry.org. Way back. It's, uh, it's there. So, because that claim was being made, and I thought, well, what does that mean? So I looked it up in the Greek. It's a false claim. Okay. The anointed one. Is Jesus the Messiah? Right. All Christians who are 
born of God have an anointing from the Holy One. Yes. So there's not some special anointing. Well, and that is something, it's something that I think Christians just say without even understanding what they mean by that. Well, this person was anointed or this meeting was anointed. That we need to be careful what words we use because words have meaning. Well, what we need to use is objective discernment that comes from Scripture. Yes. Okay. How do you know that God is present and working by his Spirit? Well, because the gospels preach, Christ is proclaimed for who he is, and we honor him. Okay. Okay. So there, I think on our CACMinistry.org site, there is a video how, that you can click, How to Discern a True Work of the Spirit. Yes, on the front page. Front page. I would urge our listeners to see that. And I go through case after case after case. And it's all about whether we proclaim the true doctrine of Christ. Okay. Well, that's what that's about. So this restoration... The sending of the Christ pointed for you, whom heaven must receive until. The until is when he comes to bring salvation to ethnic national Israel, judgment on his enemies, and set up the millennial kingdom with Christ present. Okay. Now, here we have with this book... Um, by Dutch Sheets, one confused category after another. Right. Okay, so as we were saying last week, um, he cited Ephesians one twenty two. he put all things in subjection under his feet, he gave him his head over all things to the church, but that's not the best translation. He gave him his head over all things for the church. That's a big distinction. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, I preached a sermon on that. Okay. I covered that very extensively. Um, Ephesians 1, 23-23, July 22, 2018. You can find that on ggf.church. And the church is the beneficiary. Right. Not the agent that does this for him. Okay. Okay. And what we see from Dutch Sheet is our partnership with him. Right. So we have to do our part for that to happen. Okay. Other than being the beneficiaries of Christ's work of salvation and delivering us from the domain of darkness, we have to help him defeat the enemies. Now, if that means we're the ones who go out and preach the gospel, and preach, preach repentance for forgiveness of sins, yes. But that's not what he's saying, and that's not what these NAR teachers are saying. No, they're not saying that at all. In fact, that topic is so boring, they don't even bring it up. You don't. I don't see that or hear it anywhere. It's, no, it's like no. the gospel is some sort of, well, interesting little side thing, or, well, there's a starting point, but then there's all this other. They don't even talk about it because... Rick Warren didn't talk about it. He had a different kind of a movement. It was going to subjugate the world through solving problems. But 
Let's just look at some of this. So he uses Ephesians 1.22. Then he cites 1 Corinthians 15.27, where he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Well, in other words, Christ is already raised from the dead. Okay. And we also will ultimately be raised from the dead. And even those who don't know Christ will be raised unto punishment, eternal punishment. Yes. But Christians are raised and perfected at the resurrection. Here's what Dutch Sheet says about this. Page 83, but Psalm 110 informs us that he would still be waiting for them to become a footstool. That I'm going to, he's going to quote this. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Psalm 110.1. And then here's what Dutch Sheets does. Now we're on to this page 84. Okay. Wait a minute, he says. Do we not have a contradiction between this Messianic prophecy and the New Testament verses that say he ascended to the Father's right hand and they were already under his feet? So there seems to be an inconsistency, he points out. Are they under his feet or will they be placed there? And the answer is yes. Here's how he interprets that. They are legally through the cross. They will literally, as we do our part. Okay. Verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 110 describe our part. Now, I cited that last week, but here he cites it. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth and you as the dew. So then he sees that as our part that we're to be doing now. So we're the volunteer army and we have a part to do to make the enemies a footstool. Yeah, so he interprets that as happening now during the church age. Okay. When does this actually happen? Well, he's ruling now. Yes. It happens later when Christ comes and brings judgment. We can't judge the enemies of God. Right. Now, let me read some more of what he says. With I, I marked this out and called it weird synergism. Okay. Post-millennial, by the way. Yeah, I, I have that written right in the margin of my page here, too. Post-millennialism is everywhere. People don't notice it because that's the, here in America where we're living, post-millennialism has been prevalent the entire history of this country. Right. And it isn't just a conservative version because the post-millennialism of progressives would create heaven on earth through a progressive um, coming. Okay. Know, seeing the kingdom of God and bringing it to pass. And the Brian McLarens, Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, emergent church. So everything's progressing into heaven on earth through social action. Or okay. the, the, the different version that we're reading about here would be, we're going to bring vengeance or somehow subjugate the enemies through a different version of it. Okay. And the enemies would be the ones that 
the progressives would see as the kingdom of God happening as they look around. It's no wonder it's confusing. Right. It's not our job to bring the millennium to America or the millennium to the world. It's our job to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. Yes. One side wants to claim all this glory and power and defeat enemies without even mentioning the terms for forgiveness of sins, if it even comes up, by making grand claims about themselves. And the other side redefines sin so that sin is simply denying that we're emerging into some glorious heaven. Okay. And they actually go to the state legislature and crusade for things that we would call sin. Right. Well, how are people going to understand the gospel in the midst of all this confusion? Right. And the gospel gets lost in all of it. It does. So that's why we're preaching Christ. We're not preaching ourselves. Yeah. Okay. So here's what Dutch Sheet says. Now, his would be the more defeat the sinners version and bring the glory now. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. The word power in this passage, Shayil, is also translated army. And here's what he says. Christ is looking for a volunteer army that will stretch forth his strong scepter of authority, ruling in the midst of their enemies, enforcing his great victory. So we are to be part of the volunteer army, bringing the kingdom and enforcing his victory. Okay. So once again, did he place all the authorities under foot or do we? Yes, he did. We enforce. He conquered Satan and his kingdom. We enforce the victory. So what does it mean that we enforce the defeating of Satan? What does that mean? In the context of this chapter of the book, the example he uses is binding a spirit of infirmity over a sick boy. But really, it's very unclear because you would have to look at each individual situation and see what needs to be enforced to get the outcome that we think God wants. Yeah, so is this enforcement removal of sicknesses and weaknesses? Is it, what about the the, the enemies of God that are human? Um, the souls of Tarsus not yet converted. What does it mean? Right. How do we enforce that? And what, where, uh, over, it's yeah, just so bad. Are we going to lock up all the people that don't want to serve Christ? Right. This, and all that does is silence the gospel. It. it I'm not saying he advocates doing that, but uh, why do we have so much trouble understanding the whole counsel of God that's laid out? In the scriptures. And I think the reason this confusion reigns is that Dutch Sheets takes a proof text here, a proof text there, out of context here, out of context there, and weaves it together. Okay. Ignoring what's clearly taught and thereby creates a false view of the church, the gospel, and the role of the church and what our hope is. Yes. Okay. And this could be uh, avoided if we took the scriptures in their context. I think a good way 
to illustrate why this is so wrong is they just show Luke Acts, by the way, I want to go back to Luke. If you look at Luke Acts, it's a two-volume work by one author. Okay. Luke. Yes. Who in Acts, at times, I'm prepared to teach on this Sunday school tomorrow, one of the passages were the we passages. Luke was actually there with Paul during part of it. Okay. Great historian, great writer. Um, and he wrote Luke Acts, two-volume work. Now, if you go back to Luke, Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth. In Luke 4, 18 and 19, he goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach from the scripture. Okay. The one that's read, that he reads, is Luke 4, 18, goes back to Isaiah 61. So let me show you how this works. Okay. Luke 4, 18 and 19. Here's what he said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Okay. And he put down the scroll and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And he began to preach of the scripture and preach about him as the Messiah. Okay. End of that narrative in Luke 4, they went to throw him off of a cliff. That's right. They rejected him. Okay. okay. Now, let's go read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and see what we learn from what he didn't cite. Okay, that's important. Right. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord which, by the way, all caps, Yahweh, has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, here's what he didn't cite. And the day of vengeance of our God. Right. So now why does he leave that part off? Because that's the part they're asking about in Acts 1. Okay. Now are you going to restore the kingdom? That means you bring vengeance on the enemies of Yes. Israel. Okay. And the Bible does predict a day of vengeance. Yes. It does predict Messiah defeating the enemies of God. But it's important to realize that it is Messiah who defeats the enemies of God. It's not the church. Right. Because that's why we've been citing Acts 1, Acts 3, and other passages. So why didn't Jesus cite the day of vengeance of our God? Because that would give the false impression that he came to defeat Rome. Right. But no, he came to die for sins. Yes. And so what is not cited are things that apply to the second advent. But then also, in the meantime, there's prediction about the destruction of Jerusalem in the book of Luke. Okay. okay. And so Jerusalem rejects the prophets. The restoration is something that happens later. Yes. Go back and read Acts 1, 6, 7, and 8. So in the meantime, between the day of vengeance and the ascension after Jesus died for sins, paid the penalty, shed his blood, 
was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, gave the Great Commission, poured out the Spirit, Joel 2.28 fulfilled. Okay. And people are filled with the Spirit. The gospel preached. Peter preaches. And the later part that we talked about is at the end of the church age, at the end of the time of the Gentiles. Okay. Also known as the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Right. And we've said a lot of times lately, eschatology really does matter. It's seen as a peripheral issue, but a lot of error comes in when eschatology is wrong. Right. That's why when I wrote the book about the emergent church, my first chapter is on their false eschatology. Yes. And that's what's wrong with the NAR, false eschatology. Right. And they wanted to throw dust in the air and say, well, where there's still apostles and prophets and uh, they don't have to be accurate and so on. Well, I've dealt with that. That's false as well. But really, the biggest problem is false eschatology. They believe they'll bring the vengeance. Right. Okay. Okay. They forget about the role of the church during the church age. Right. So restoration of all things has to do with Christ coming at the end of Daniel's 70th week, defeating the enemies that have just, you know, arrayed themselves against a remnant, a saved remnant of Jews and some Gentiles at the end of that 70th week, which is seven years. Okay. At the very end, the Great Tribulation. And then he sets up the Millennial Kingdom. Right. And right. he does it. We don't do it. And we, who, those who have died, be raised and uh, will reign with him. Okay. Okay. So that's what the Bible teaches, but they're claiming we defeat the enemies and reestablish this through doing our part. Right. He says here, he conquered Satan and his kingdom. We enforce the victory. No. How are we going to enforce a victory over Satan? Right. Well, what? Christ in the gospel. The only thing that we do is preach the terms whereby people exit the domain of Satan and darkness. Yes. We need to be completely out of his domain. Right. So if you're under the authority of darkness because your sins are not forgiven and you're bound for hell, looking at symptoms is not going to solve any problems. Yes. We've mentioned this before. That's pertinent. Let me say it again. There are always people, and you read obituaries, and and you hear about people that live very exemplary lives. They volunteer. They do great things. They have talents. They found companies. Maybe they run nonprofits. There are always people who have no relationship with Christ and don't claim to have one. Right. And they're not um, tormented by demons. They may live long, healthy, prosperous lives for 90 years or longer. Yeah. Even longer. And then they die and they we eulogize and 
That's it. Yep. But the, those people who had none of these horrible symptoms that people are talking about, uh, folks needing deliverance, they're just as much under the domain of darkness of Satan as people with all kinds of problems. Right. That's a false category to claim people with problems are under Satan and demons or Christians are still under Satan and demons until they get them cast out. Well, and we could spend a long time just talking about how they arrive at that with uh, their allegory of Israel taking the land. (laughs) I know, but here's the point. Being under Christ is not about examining symptoms of weaknesses and difficulties. Right. Being delivered from Satan and being under Christ is about having a relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, and all the promises that attend to that, including ultimate resurrection, eternal life, and that he hears us and we have access to the throne of grace the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Christ intercedes for us. And we care and pray for one another. That's the promises of God. You cannot say that because someone's sick, they have a spirit of infirmity that needs to be cast out. Right. We can't even know that information. This chapter got, that we're critiquing was about something like that. Yes. I believe that's where it was. It's some weeks ago. But they're going to get this demon or whatever this was. Listen. We're not enforcing a victory. We're proclaiming that Christ did defeat Satan and ascend to heaven. And the ultimate defeat is future. In the meantime, the kingdom of Satan is plundered whenever someone like Saul of Tarsus converted, who had been a persecutor of Christ and now is serving him. Right. Okay. This these categories are confused. They're false. They're misleading. They dishonor God. They, we've said this many times. The more I read this again and again and again, this teaching is so much. How can we make Christ decrease so we can increase? Yeah. I keep saying it's shocking. And and the farther we get into this book, the more shocking it is. But they just say these things with without blushing. Yeah, why would you not have some fear of God? Right. When it's clear in the book of the epistles of John that all Christians have an anointing from the Holy One. Yeah. Antichrist is a false anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. There are no other people anointed beyond ordinary Christians. So yeah. why exalt certain ones that have some power or insight or they claim this or they claim that or they have more followers or they have more exciting meetings, they're the anointed man or woman of God or whatever. Why would you do that? It's, it's um, why would you not have some fear of God that you're blaspheming him by making claims that only apply to Christ. Right. And why would you dishonor godly saints who trust him and know him and have forgiveness of sins, and they have difficulties and sicknesses and weaknesses, and they're made to think that probably Satan got a hold of them and we have to figure out some 
persuaded enforce some victory by subjective revelations? It's, uh, it doesn't matter to me that they think, well, well, you're not offering hope because I know that they are taking away people's hope and we're telling them the foundation of hope cannot be taken away. Right. If the blood of Jesus has cleansed your heart, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, and he intercedes for us, and he assures that he'll bring us to glory, that hope cannot be removed. But if a false teacher comes into town, says, well, look at you. You have weaknesses. You have sicknesses. You don't have problems. I mean, you have problems. You haven't solved it. You're not enforcing God's victory uh, over Satan and demons or whatever. So they're, you're kind of a pathetic Christian compared to us glorious ones. <laughs> it's really, if there's any pastors listening, we need to protect the flock from these wolves and vultures that are preying on them. Yes, absolutely. Many of them love the Lord and they get sucked into these meetings. And when they go home, they have the same ordinary lives and they're, they start thinking they're defeated. Yep. All right. Well, this has gone fast. Once again, we are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. You can access this episode and many others, as well as years worth of articles at the website, cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramus. And Bob DeWay. We'll see you next week.